Checking in again with State Representative Tacky Chan of Quincy, who is in his office on Beacon Hill today. Hi, Tacky. Hey, Joe. Uh, this Thursday, uh, the 25th, I am indeed in my office. I have uh, some meetings uh, with some folks in the uh, mid-afternoon, and I have a dinner with one of the reps that want to talk about some issues important to that person. And uh, oddly enough, I actually do have a lunch meeting on top of everything else, so it's actually quite a full day. And it's been a busy week at the State House this week, right? Uh, most notably yesterday, the governor's budget was unveiled. Yeah, uh, as you heard last week was a state, a state address. We were hoping to hear uh, some clues that she was going to indicate. And we talked a little bit about, you know, uh, pre-K and all that stuff. Uh, but the uh, recommendations uh, yesterday is where uh, it's more concrete what she's looking for. And I remind folks, and, and the advocates kind of are interesting over my decades of doing this, is that you know they treat the governor's budget as if this is what's going to happen? As as it says on the cover, it's a recommendation, kind of a wish list on on the administration's part, right? That's correct. If you know those remember from the civics class, you know the U.S. Constitution and our state constitution gives the power of appropriation to the House of Representatives first. So uh, we will obviously wait for House Ways and Means to do the analysis on the governor's budget. And uh, House Ways and Means will make a recommendation to the membership when they filed their uh, bill. Uh, and then obviously when it goes to the House floor, we'll engage in debate. So those of you who are thinking about the timeline, you know, the uh, Patriots Day, I believe, is April 15th. So the Wednesday before Patriots Day is when House Ways and Means is going to release their budget. Amendments are due the Friday before Patriots Day. And we go to debate uh, the week after Patriots Day. See, everything rolls around Patriots Day and the budget in my mind. Um, so we do have sort of a week off between the filing of amendments uh, and the beginning of the debate, unless you're a Ways Means Committee, which you don't get any sleep. Um, and uh, Passover is actually um, the evening, I believe, of the Monday after Patriots Day, which would be 7 plus 5, which is 22, I believe. Um, so we will be delaying the beginning of the budget, which normally starts that Monday. So there'll be a, a couple of days delay, which could hold us um, to the end of the week and always a possibility of a Saturday session, which is not incurred of. So uh, depending on how efficient we go, it, it could be uh, it could be a longer week than expected with this year's budget going into the uh, the end of April. So right. yeah. again, it's just a recommendation. She's got ideas. As I said last time, we're always receptive to ideas, whether we accept your ideas as a whole other matter. Right. Yes. Uh, I mean, initially, the proposal is $58.1 It's up a little over 2.5%, I think. The priorities, though, uh, are you know more important, I think, to talk about uh, public transportation, uh, housing, uh, and infrastructure, and, and public education. Yes. You know, obviously, one of the high points she talks about is regarding providing more funding to the MBTA. You know, we have provided some funding and supplemental budgets regarding the necessity of hires. Uh, as you all aware, this is a very competitive marketplace for workers. Workers uh, for the past year and a half essentially has been dictating terms regarding uh, salary and benefits. Uh, the government is no different. We generally paid less than the private sector. Um, as much as people like to rally against government employees, uh, these kind of strong uh, worker environment on benefits works against the government as well. So uh, people who actually leave government for better money, big surprise, uh, and those who will reconsider going to government get better uh, get a pay of something else for equivalent work. And the MBTA, uh, which I've always never seen this in my lifetime, is struggling for workers. So 
you know, also the uh, budget deficit, I believe, is six hundred fifty-ish million dollars uh, for the upcoming fiscal year, and the government's looking trying to plug that hole as much as possible. We are definitely very concerned about that, and you know, we're going to see what our options are. Uh, as you are probably aware, about thirty percent of the MBTA budget is kind of ended paying off debt. And uh, to cons put in perspective, I mean, uh, a government agency, or whether it be a municipal, state, or whatever, or should keep their debt load around 5-ish percent. Uh, the state debt load's generally around 3% of our budget, give or take, depending on what year we're in. So the MBTA is heavily burdened by debt. It's also heavily burdened by electric costs because of the fact that um, the, the rail system is all electric. And we're moving to electrification of buses over time, which means the electric bill will continue to go up. And uh, you know, people would say, well, you're offsetting my fuel prices. It doesn't matter. The, the rail system is the biggest consumer of power. Uh, no amount of reduction of fossil fuel consumption of buses is going to make up the price differential regarding the volume of electricity that's used to run the, the train system. So, you know, they they continue to be very challenging. We heard from the MBTA German I yesterday, cap improvements continue to be a priority. Uh, he has no desire on creating circumstances where you're doing the same work twice. Uh, their goal is to uh, set a project, have the project, do the project, not set a project, get it all to like 50% design, then put it back on the shelf. Right. This is not that kind of general manager, which has been the practice of past general managers. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to see. It's, but at the same time, the governor is also talking about a, a reduced fare program for, for folks of, of low income. So it seems seems a little counterintuitive. I don't think fares are, are you know, helping with revenue as it is. Yeah, fares are still a big part of the revenue. It's somewhere around 20% zone, give or take, you know, 5%, mm -hmm. depending on the, the offset of other revenues. Like if more federal money comes in, mm -hmm. you know, see the percentage shrinks. So, you know, that's why we say it's give or take because it depends on the other revenue sources that creates the different bulges and percentages. Mm -hmm. uh, but I mean, fares are steady revenue at this point. Um, although it is a little confusing. Um, and the reason I say it is this, uh, there's only so much space you can put on a train, bus, or commuter rail and, uh, and even ferry. And uh, there is a medium, meaning that, you know, obviously they have the data on how many riders they have per month and they can kind of project out what the expectation is. You know, with the COVID situation we talked about before, where literally almost no one was on a train nearly, and then you go to work from home, which, you know, obviously work on Beacon Hill, the the financial district uh, and, you know, all the big business offices around here are not full. I mean, you can, how you tell is basically lunchtime. You walk out between hours 1130 and 230. There isn't a lot of folks out here um, other than the students, the Suffolk students are all over, all over up here. So... You know, that also impacts the MBTA and, uh, you know, they always they have all that data on ridership so they can project it out. So if we don't, you know, the only thing they can really do is try to raise fares or try to raise advertising dollars uh, for their various um, billboards and, and signage and whatnot for advertisers. But, you know, once they get past that, you know, they're, it's a sales tax. They get one penny of each dollar, uh, each uh, $6, $0.06 cents. Six six point two five cents. They get one penny, and then they have to get uh, assistance from the feds. So, you know whether or not the, the feds are going to pony up more money to all the public transportation systems nationally, not just us. You know, as part of um, the the infrastructure and other types of big um, uh, transportation projects at the federal level, and um, 
Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how the MBTA funding works. Fares is almost a fixed cost. But again, we're in this weird zone where, you know, 2019, the pack to the gills numbers isn't necessarily reflecting the 2024 numbers or 2023 numbers uh, regarding the fact that, you know, work at home is a thing. Right. Does the uh, new, um, you know, fair share amendment, the millionaire's tax, uh, help at all? No, well, we could probably put some money there towards MBTA. I'm not sure what the plan is is up here. I mean, we created kind of like wish list, as I said last time, for the money in the fair share. We didn't put it really as kind of like it's definitely going to happen. If the money's there, it'd be nice we could do this. Uh, and we set aside a billion dollars for education and transportation last time. Uh, not entirely clear what the revenue stream would be because it's the first time you do it, there's no clear indication of what it's going to look like. There's no track history. Right. You know, half, half a billion for, you know, kind of a wish list, half a billion for a wish list on, on, on education, half a billion wish list for transportation. So um, I have a hard time believing we deviate from that idea. Uh, it takes about three-ish years to get a track pattern of what uh, a new tax stream looks like. And uh, we have to wait to see how it unfolds. But, you know, I'm not saying we won't, but mm -hmm. I'd be a little surprised if we did. Yeah, I know January is a big month for um, forecasting, right? For projections, uh, uh, anticipating what the state's revenues may be. Have you had any sense for that yet? We're going very conservative. I, I haven't looked at the latest projections because I suspect they're going to adjust again in March. Okay. Uh, how it works because uh, we got closer and closer to the tax day. The projections will start to shift around. Um, a big surprise, people get their refunds long before tax day. Mm -hmm. So it's negative. We go into somewhat of a negative tax situation um, in the month of March because people are not going to wait for their refunds. Right. right. Uh, if they owe, they're going to wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you owe, you're going to wait to April. If, you, if you're getting back, you're, you're going to back sooner. Right. So um, so we're kind of waiting out a sale. It looks like it'll probably be a adjustment in April, uh, sorry, March, April, May, uh, and going to June when, when the House Senate goes to Congress could be a real adjustment. I mean, below 2% um, would be reasonable uh, expectation for FY25. I think that would be, you know, probably a good expectation. A far cry from 4% uh, percent we've done in the past um, because it's just been good economy for, for a, a couple of years. Uh, if it's actually as low as 1.5, I wouldn't be surprised either. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So this actually what you predicted two years ago is now finally coming to fruition, Techie. <laughs> Well, a clock's right. A clock is right twice a day. Uh, that's kind of how I I am uh, become. I'm only right uh, twice a day. Uh, yeah, this, this <laughs> is how you you're talking about this exact concern in 2022 because of the pandemic. Yeah, the pandemic created all kinds of unusual economic situations because we've never seen something like this before. We were we at like 14 percent unemployment, right. and now you can't find people to to do work. And it's not because of pandemic benefits. That's that's on. I mean, I anticipated um, that you know, loss of pandemic benefits would have a huge shift on, econo on economics in terms of spending and consumption. Again, the economy is 70, 75% driven by consumption, not by uh, manufacturing. Um, so, so it's really up to uh, literally all of us listening here that actually drives the economy by, by spending money. Yep. Uh, and that didn't happen. They, people continue to spend. Um, and expect the student loans in October coming back into effect. Uh, and uh, that didn't seem to slow down, although Christmas wasn't that robust compared to the last three years, right. uh, minus the COVID year. Um, and uh, 
but still, I mean, they're still going on. But, you know, keep an eye on the liquidities. I mean, um, there's going to be working up David regarding the liquidity of loans, especially auto loans. Um, and, you know, travel is strong, but I think the airlines are starting to get a little nervous about the forecasting with airlines. So, uh, again, I'm still uh, ringing the alarm. Yeah, almost two years now after the fact that, you know, people uh, will, you know, engage in consumer behavior changes. Yeah. Yeah. And now we've got, you know, geopolitical tensions that we didn't have then the Israel Hamas war, the Russia Ukraine war. So there's those considerations. There's the Red Sea situation now as well. So a lot going on. Yeah. Companies going to have a really hard time now figuring out if they can jack up prices any further. One of the funny things about consumables is that some of the companies are making more money, but less units. So they're selling, their sales look great on the raw number, but if you look at units sold, it's not as good. Mm-hmm. And it's a reflection of the fact that people pay for higher prices, especially for necessities, but it doesn't mean they're buying as much of them. They're stretching out their consumables as far as they can get to stretch them out. Right. The situation in Red Sea, and we talked about this, is, is the easy, one of the most busy trade ports in uh Asia, Europe, and Africa, and obviously North America and South America is affected too. But I mean, obviously that that part of the world, it's it's essential in moving uh, goods back and forth. We I mean, learned that during the Ukraine war too, moving grain out of the Black Sea, you know, through the Mediterranean into the Red Sea. So, you know, the all companies globally uh, in their own local markets are going to have to make some really hard decisions about you know can the consumer take another price hit risk lower volume sales and you know what's the break point and it's not just us in the us i mean this is a this is a global problem for every every economy and you know i think what big companies will do is going to try to hold off and jack price increases on the red sea situation as they kind of watch it play out you know as we talked about you have to go around africa you know increases the time by about two plus weeks you have more insurance costs associated going to the red sea you have to you know beef, beef up your own security because you're gonna have pirates trying to get onto your uh cargo vessel not necessarily just you know getting hit by missiles um so i mean you know and we haven't talked about water mines you know at some point mines are going to have to make an appearance and you know the u.s is going to have to get some minesweepers i mean the, the, the number of scenarios could just be you know very costly for, for these cargo ships and um, it is still the you know cost efficient way to s- transport things you know over long distances in terms of volume versus fuel versus time. So I mean, air freight's going to probably pick up some more, but there's no way air freight can compensate for cargo. We experienced that already during COVID. Uh, sea cargo ground to a halt, halt, and we're trying to move not not necessarily essential foods, but or, or goods, but we're just trying to move uh, medical equipment, PPE, and all that stuff you know by air through 2020. And uh, that that's very time consuming. So, you know, it's, it's you know, we'll see how it plays out. But I mean, you know, I, I suspect big, big corporations would try to hold off on massive, like not like one to two percent, like eight, nine, ten percent spikes if they can as long as possible. Right. Yeah. And, and typically also, you know, it's an election year. So um, that presents a whole new um, <laughs> hurdle to overcome. Folks usually wait to see the outcome of that first. That's true. Uh, you know, there's some, you know, general facts about, you know, economic years on presidential re-election cycles. I mean, the last time the stock market, you know, went bottom on the economic, on the presidential year regarding the economy was 1940, I believe. Hmm. So, you know, it's, it generally the re-election of a president generally results in a strong market, COVID aside, because that was a, a unique situation. 
Um, but, you know, also Biden is right now spending a lot of that infrastructure money uh, that they appropriated the last uh, year or so. And, um, you know, it's not surprising. It's an election cycle. And Biden is banking on jobs, 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 jobs. I mean, he's really running a very old but very sensible playbook in politics that people have jobs. Um, you know, it's, it's a sign of a good economy. And, you know, it was still under 4% on unemployment. And yep. uh, again, unemployment isn't a thing where people just sit there. It's just a rotation. People come off, people come on, people come off. So the numbers are always rotating a little bit uh, every week as unemployment numbers coming on, off, uh, on and off, you know, kind of shifts the, you know, fractions of a decimal point. But, um, you know, in the monthly, it's it's sitting at under 4%. And today's mm -hmm. G number was at 3.2 percent you know much farther ahead than the one um 1.2 1.3 percent they were looking at for, for for gdp so you know the quarterly gdp is is much much higher than than anticipated it means the hot economy so you have a um, low unemployment high gdp number um and pce's looking like it's going to be around two percent which is what the fed reserve is looking for um, so it's, you know, all the numbers indicate very, very strong economy, but on the flip side, again, you have very high prices still, especially on wages, uh, that is built into the price of uh, doing business, I mean, right. your bill, what if you pay for it, for wages too, and benefits, and, you know, businesses are struggling trying to, to make those costs meet as pass to the customer. So, you know, consumers are in this weird spot where, you know, jobs are there, Pay is okay. The final inflation and their pay is finally starting to sink up very slowly in terms of their costs, but no one feels like they're getting ahead because saving money is far, far too difficult. Yeah, exactly. Um, we talked a little bit about a story I read earlier this week, Tacky, regarding um, uh, liquor licenses and uh, the governor talking about in her state of the Commonwealth. Maybe uh, allowing cities and towns more control, uh, less uh, control by the state, but then that not happening this week. Yeah, this was very confusing. Uh, the Mass mm -hmm. Municipal Association conference was late last week through the weekend, I believe. I think it ended on Saturday, maybe. I, I think so, yeah. yeah. I don't go to these conferences, but you know, the governor uh, generally makes appearance at every conference and announces uh, things that may help city and towns regarding the operations and the budgetary challenges they face. And uh, she had made an announcement to give unlimited alcohol licenses to all cities and towns uh, for restaurants, except for the city of Boston, which actually operates in a very special, different quota system because the city is so big, the state of quota system doesn't work properly. So, you know, made that announcement um, last week. Then she put out a municipal reform bill or support bill, initiative bill, you can call it whatever it wants, but it's a municipally related bill. And that language was not there. Um, right. I believe it was the Boston Globe that had that article. I think that's where I read it, yeah. And um, a lot of confusion ensued. Mm -hmm. So uh, this was definitely a right hand, left hand, not talking to each <laughs> other. So it's, it is on something this big a policy matter, which impacts a lot of industries in restaurants, because it's not just restaurants, all the ancillary aspects, you know, alcohol production, providing insurance, you know, all that stuff, plus competitive issues in the local level and whether or not, you know, the, the restaurant will do better or, or worse business with them with alcohol. And of course, changes the valuation of license alcohol, which is a quarter system. So when we have a limited number of licenses available, the valuation is high. When you flood the market, the valuation declines of the licenses that are currently out there. So yeah, this was, you know, rather a 
large policy piece that, that can be very disruptive to the, the sitting restaurant industry on, on the uh, alcohol code evaluation. And uh, didn't show up Monday. And, um, you know, this, this is a bit embarrassing um, when you think about it, because, you know, we're talking about a big uh, uh, seismic shift. Uh, mm-hmm. on, like, you all this thing probably like just, you know, didn't think about, but this is my little word of alcohol policy. And, uh, you know, this is a seismic shift on you know, something that's been around since the end of prohibition um, is, is a big deal. And I'm sure the Mass Municipal Association was pushing for that. And the fact they make it didn't the, the fact sheet the, the the speech didn't match up the bill that was actually also submitted on Friday. Um, so the fact sheet their speech uh, was all in the same name with the bill, but the bill didn't reflect the speech on the fact sheet. So we were relying on the fact sheet as our first reveal, and you know then we looked at the bill it was like it's not here. <laughs> oops, yeah. that's a, that's yeah. a big oops. <laughs> Yeah, this is embarrassing. This is very yeah. embarrassing. Again, right hand, left hand, not conversing. And she's they've been there a year. You expect them to at least be able to get their feet much better under them at this point. Right. Yeah. We should talk, I guess, a little bit about some of the things that are included in that um, opportunity to for uh, municipalities to get more revenue from the hotel tax, meals tax, and I think excise tax. Yeah, this is uh, interesting because we. Um, haven't done a municipal tax package actually before I got elected back in 09, wow. I believe, uh, 09, 010, because of the financial crises uh, from, from that recession. And that recession actually lingered to basically almost 2015, almost. Mm. Um, and wage deflation and everything else came with it, as well as foreclosure on homes at a massive level, which means municipalities can't get property tax if there is a foreclosure. And you're probably never going to recover. Uh, because of the foreclosures. So, uh, you know, the Mass Municipal Association, again, your cities in town and local elected officials are part of Mass Municipal Associations are always looking for new ways to generate revenue. And of course, they probably just blame the legislature because that's that's what they love doing over there. As you can tell, I'm not very fond of the association. They <laughs> must for everything. Yeah. Um, but generally, that was the last time in the financial crisis. I don't believe we're in that same situation. I do know we have some budgetary challenges, and the you know, revenue stream is is um, not going to be as robust. But we're not in negative revenue stream. We're not doing negative numbers from the prior cycle. So you know, there's you know, what's the belief that this is going to happen municipal level? There's going to be a negative revenue stream on the prop two and a half. I, I it's possible, but unlikely. Mm-hmm. And also, that also implies the fact that we're going to restrict local aid. Right, which you're not, right? Which we're not. We're, we're yeah. most likely going to do some kind of local aid increase uh, going to cities and towns again. One of the reasons we provided, or before me, uh, provided these alternative options of revenue generation local level, uh, particularly you all know the 0.75% meals tax that local cities and towns get, is because we just had to restrict local aid so we can keep our budget moving. Uh, so we gave St. Towns more options on hotel motel tax at a time, as well as meals tax to give them the ability to generate some local revenue you know, on their own. And it's optional. You didn't have to do it. Mm-hmm. So I th- personally think it's a little premature for the governor to make his proposals while a clear indication that we're going to actually cut um, assistance with cities and towns. And I don't believe the revenue is justifiable for that. The lottery numbers will still be okay in my mind. I'm like, you know, we're going to have another insane jackpot at some point on the multi-state level, which is going to drive up water revenues, which goes back to cities and towns. And your tax dollars pay 
uh, for unrestricted government assistance or UGA, as we like to call it. Um, and that those tax dollars you put in, you know, goes back to city towns to supplement your income. As I talked before, I mean, the city, um, you know, plus chapter 70 education money, you know, they, they're looking at well past 35% of their budget is just those two items. Right. When we start tossing our earmarks, we talk, start tossing in the various grant programs. Um, you know, it can, it can rise to 40% plus of the city tax uh, of their budget, of this budget that, you know, that we put in that, it means that the city doesn't have to do a tax increase in the form of up to and a half override. Yeah, and now there are new revenue sources for the state too. There's, you know, there's casinos, there's sports betting, there's um, marijuana. So um, th th that all gets factored into, I'm sure. Oh yes, I mean marijuana has a local remediation component. I mean the city and town sets up a reme remediation. We do captive remediation. I mean, the gambling money does have a local support component. It doesn't actually mean local aid per se, because obviously Quincy doesn't have a casino, but it goes into transportation, it goes into education, it goes indirectly into other programs uh, that the city benefits or not local nonprofits benefit from as well. Um, and of course, sports betting does a similar thing. We, we put that money into different pots. Um, and some of those pots include a funding to cities and towns for specific programs. So, I mean, I think it's sometimes people forget how, how much uh, we exist as a valuable resource for cities and towns because, you know, it's, it's very easy for uh, the local government to go, hey, you know, we, we you know, have all this money to spend, but they don't really reveal that we vote for this money up here. We craft the public policy, these laws. We're the ones who give them uh, some uh, flexibility and authority, whether it be, you know, RFPs or local aid or some other component. And uh, the strength of the delegation, uh, because we all have a lot of seniority up here, you know, gives us more ability to push, you know, projects that makes more sense for Quincy, um, right. and also programs that make more sense for Quincy, how we fund. Uh, but again, we can't be pigs, right? We have to remember that we have a lot of small communities, and those reps and centers who are in small communities also looking for it. So mm -hmm. as you can tell, it's a balancing act here uh, between the larger communities and Boston, because Boston's special, and then you have, you know, much, much smaller communities, which you can't leave hanging high and dry. That's completely unfair to those cities, those little, actually pretty much little towns and uh, electeds of those towns. So, you know, this place is always this constant balancing act to ensure that nobody's left behind per se um, on a municipal level, even though everyone thinks they've been left behind. It's, it's not. Um, so, uh, you know, as much as, you know, all the local governments like to tell you know we got all this money. They tend to ignore the fact that someone had to vote for that money. Yeah, yeah. It's well, it's, it's such a diverse commonwealth, right? You've got uh, you know the as you mentioned the Greater Boston metropolitan area with their urban needs. You've got Western Mass agricultural, and then there's the Cape and Islands. You know, it's a more maritime based economy and travel and tourism based economy. Yeah, and we're very conscious. Of that. I mean, we do have a literally a committee on tourism up here in the legislature because it is are number two or three driver depending on the year, right? Number one is healthcare. Number two and three is education and tourism, depending on what the circumstances are. The complex machinery, people forget we do do like circuit boards and similar things. And then you have seafood. Agricultural products are still a big part of Massachusetts exports. And um, that's, 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 you know, those are the key drivers here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're right. I mean, this is a, a, a balancing act constantly up here to ensure that no part of the state is, is, is ignored and recognizing the part of the state has a different economic driver. Yeah. 
Last week, I think you mentioned you were going to be meeting soon with um, the new DCR commissioner, uh, Brian Arrigo. Did that happen yet, Techie? No, the schedule is going to be up for the 30th, okay. uh, which is next Tuesday. Um, you know, there may be a reschedule. This place is constantly rescheduling. Yeah. Um, and uh, we'll, we're all home. I got to go take some more pictures. Uh, what you see from like three months ago isn't always the same thing you see today. And you right. know, I was, the state has a lot of land. They have, you know, Frisbrook Park, Wakefield Drive, Walls Beach, Coyport Park, Duponsa Bridge, the Blue Hills. Uh, a lot of uh, smaller environmentally sensitive land associated adjacent to those locations, um, and obviously, you know, dredging is a priority for me. So, you know, we, you know, we did get some cash through APA and other, you know, sources, but you know, I, I need to find out what the division of waterways looking like over there. And, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm aware of the street light problem with Frenchburg Parkway. I've been working on it for a long time in the past. Commissioners have not been helpful. Uh, on that issue, and part of it is because natural grid control the streetlights. But last um, two, actually last year, um, beginning of last year, they've been transferring the streetlight ownership to DCR, and uh, DCR uh, has a light streetlight replacement program slash contractor. And I need to move me up the list here. I mean, you know, there's three of them out um, at the corner of Adams and Furnish Brook going eastbound. I think there's at least three. They are missing three whole poles, they believe, um, moving towards uh, the, um, the, do I call it the tree streets, the Oakland, Willow, the, that, that area. Okay. Can't remember all the names. Uh, I was bad at street names. I just can see it in my head. So that's space on the way to um, the, the Newport Ave, uh, but not quite there yet. You know, about maybe like... Yep, gotcha. It's very treed, so it's very dark. Um, you know, so yeah, that's that's an issue for sure. Yeah, so I mean that that's that's a big thing, and I did mention it to the new DCR legislative person. Like, you know, he's like, "What do you need?" I'm like, "You need street lights." I mean, you know, that that's the immediate, that's a near term need right now. Uh, this has got to be solved. And, you know, they're also aware of the whole issue regarding um, at the middle school there, which don't make me say names because I keep massacring it. But I mean the people picking up their kids keep grinding up the the muddy sections and we can't keep hearing from folks about that so uh you can't do a whole new curb cut sidewalk and i'll be frank with you folks you put a curb side curb cut sidewalks it does not discourage people from driving onto the sidewalk and ruining all right i've seen this enough and you've all seen this enough of people putting their half their car on the sidewalk you think oh, that's yeah. you think that's good for the sidewalk and their curb cut of course not. And he got Ann was driving an SUV, so it was like two tons of it. So, you know, everyone's keep asking, oh, you know, we, we want curb cuts inside. I was like, it won't be there in one year of just SUVs sitting on top of it waiting for their kids. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at some other uh, gravel slash um, harder substance, which will last longer. Uh, but reality is going to get destroyed anyway every time an SUV gets on top of it. Before. And again, school, you guys know how long the school year is, so you can, you can picture in your head. So, and, you know, they, it's all one ways in that area from, because the city owns those roads adjacent to try to keep people off the residential area getting their children. So, we're, I'm very aware of it. As you can tell, we'll talk about that, that issue as well. And, of course, general maintenance of Walls of Beach. I mean, me and Bruce and John would like to have, you know, permanent employee in Walls of Beach. We've been blessed to have one for many decades. She retired um, a few uh, a couple of years back and. Um, having a permanent employee supervising walls and beaches is critical in terms of you know trash pickup, grass cutting, managing lifeguards, and so forth. And yep. you know, 
working with yacht clubs and state police, state police patrol, and they're trying to accommodate, you know, events at the yacht clubs uh, because of the parking restrictions. And obviously we like better coordination between DCR and the city, uh, especially during storm situations. Sure. Um, want to talk politics for a little bit? Any surprises from the New Hampshire primary for you, Jackie? Nope, nope. Yeah. I mean, uh, I said last time that Nikki Haley has to beat Trump by five points. Uh, that is that clearly didn't happen. It looks like he's going to beat her by at least seven minimum as the final votes come in. Um, highest Republican turnout um, in the history of New Hampshire in terms of Republican primary. Um, not surprising. Uh, you know, there was a lot of drum up. Um, DeSantis getting out. Not surprising. Um, I always thought they said this problem was it was a one trick pony. He kept harping on social issues, social issues. It that doesn't sell everywhere in the state for Republicans. This is a big country, and Republicans in different parts of the country have different priorities. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also tried to be all things to all Republicans. Um, so it's like you know he didn't want to beat up Donald Trump, but he wanted to be Donald Trump at the same time. And, you know, at least give Christie some credit here. I mean, you know, he at least staked out a position that, you know, anti-Trump, you know, he staked out a position. Yeah, the Republican base is so small. It, you know, there was not enough Republicans in that base and independents weren't changing your registration strictly for him. Right. So, you know, I give him a little bit of credit of just, you know, staking out a position, but sadly that the, the, just not enough Republicans there or changing registration to join his cause. Nikki Haley is kind of a, a situation where she's trying to be relatively inoffensive. She had been riding, uh, my observation, riding the non-offensive road as long as she could. But now she needs to decide. She goes into the boxing and just start punching, punching Trump straight up. And that's that's really Haley's option here. Uh, she's been flying kind of like, you know, I'm a foreign affairs person, a small state because of South Carolina folks. Um, and that, uh, you know, I am the young future conservative and next to Biden and Trump, I'm sorry. I mean, when, if you're under 60, you're young now. I mean, come on, folks. Yeah. I mean, you know, this, there was a time where presidents were elected in their early 50s. I mean, those days seem to be uh, bygone eras, it feels like. Uh, but, you know, that youth is a thing. And, you know, Nikki's, you know, Haley's pointing out that, you know, polling is showing that she, she can beat Biden. And that's, that's something of a calculation in, in primary politics is that you do want to pick a candidate that can beat the other party's candidate, not necessarily because, you know, you favor a Republican Democrat. That, that is part of a calculation, folks, especially going into convention of voting. So, but her money is going to dry up quick. Like I said, she needed a strong showing in New Hampshire. She needed a win. She didn't get it. Nevada caucuses are up next next week, I think, or the first right. week, second week of April. Caucuses matter. Um, the media spends way too much time in primaries. Uh, yeah. Caucuses matter a lot. And in her home state of South Carolina is up in three weeks or so. So, you know, Tim Scott, who she, he, she appointed to be a U.S. senator, you know, has gone with Donald Trump, which obviously a slap in the face of the woman that, you know, gave you a job, essentially. Right. Um, so if she got to survive Nevada with some kind of okay number, and then she's got to, you know, be able to convince donors to give to her that she could smash South Carolina just to keep her viable to Super Tuesday in March. Um, why do you say caucus is important? I'll never forget this. Obama versus uh, Hillary Clinton. 
you know, Barack Obama snuck by Hillary, even though she was wearing primaries. He smashed those caucuses all over the country. And the media wasn't paying attention to those caucuses. Like he was destroying her in caucus states, like big, big numbers. And uh, she, he only had to stay competitive in primary states. And uh, that's a reflection of the Obama campaign infrastructure being so big on the grassroots level. Mm-hmm. They, they was destroying her on those caucuses. And, and once the momentum showed up on delicate numbers, the primaries started shifting his direction because people like to put, you know, support a winner. I don't believe Nikki Haley has a big enough grassroots infrastructure to pull that off against Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Because that means she's got to get people on the ground to gather more Republicans to show up in caucuses that normally wouldn't show up in a caucus because they've inspired to support her over Donald Trump. I, I just don't see or having that level of grassroots, nor does she create that level of inspiration to motivate Republicans that normally do not participate in the caucus. Yeah, I'm surprised she's not leaning more on her experience as a U.S. ambassador. You know, that that would seem to differentiate her from other candidates. Well, remember uh, way back in Clinton and Bush, is the economy stupid? Oh, you yeah, know, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry to say foreign affairs is not a big part of the electorate's mindset. Yeah. Uh, it is a crucial part of being U.S. president. When the founding fighters set up this country, the president had exclusive powers regarding foreign relationships. Yes, the U.S. Senate had approved treaties. Congress had approved declaration of wars. But in terms of engaging other countries, the president is the face of the United States right. regarding how our country is reflected. And domestically speaking, people don't think about it because they don't care about it. Yeah. They care about you know, food on the table, the economy, health care. We talk about inflation. You know, having a job, you know, people don't sit around and think, well, do you think our president, you know, is going to look good in front of France? I guess they, I guess you're right. Yeah, it's, I do think about that. So that's why I, I'm surprised. But but I guess the majority don't. Yeah. Yeah. This was a thing back in the colonial era. Uh, you know, go back to the you know, late 17, 1800s. Uh, yeah. Yeah. President for foreign affairs was a big deal for the electorate because... Oh, yeah. Congress was was uh, was the domestic stuff, and then uh, because of international trade, not getting dragged into European wars, um, you know, try to maintain a neutral stance on global conflicts. Uh, back in the 19th century, uh, you know, people actually did think about this stuff at some level. Like, you know, we don't want a president dragging us into a European conflict. Napoleon can do what he wants, but leave us alone, right? Yeah, I, yeah John Adams was a diplomat. So was his son, right? <laughs> And actually, uh, Secretary of States became uh, presidents uh, in the early part of the 1800s. Yeah. And uh, that was a selling point for the public. Mind you, of course, the public had a different looking base back then. Yeah. Uh, but that was a big that was a big deal uh, for folks. See, I was and, born way too late. <laughs> That's my problem. <laughs> I was born way too late. <laughs> but today, yeah, no, you're ahead of the curve uh, in many ways. Uh, but I mean, today that's not the case. As the you know, since uh, the 20th century has been a reflection of the U.S. president pushing a lot of domestic policy, and you know, 21st century, that's not going to change. Um, and uh, you know, it doesn't. People look at FDR, and FDR does get a lot of credit for domestic policies, but the fact that Teddy Roosevelt went after uh, the big corporations and antitrust. You know, you know, really is one of the biggest domestic policies in changing how our economy works. You know, the elimination of monopolies, so or prevention of monopolies. So, yeah, I mean, you know, domestic. You know, having presidents push Congress for domestic policies was a 20, really a 20th century thing, range yeah. uh, of 21st. So I mean, this is kind of how the, you know we, we perceive things. But you know, it doesn't matter. Absolutely, you do want a U.S. president that 
know, can rally allies, can create good trade situations, can uh, negotiate uh, with foreign leaders uh, for um, even safe passage or right of passage through waterways, right? And uh, as you can also see now, I mean, we are still the biggest uh, stick in the block, so to speak. And our ability to project power is crucial in terms of not necessarily our own security, but trade security, you know, global security, try to prevent things from uh, spinning out of control. I mean, the U.S. Uh, support of Ukraine keeps Russia contained. Right. Think about that. Think about that. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. Ukraine goes down. You think this guy was going to stop? I mean, you know, he was eyeballing everything around it, which is why, you know, European, no European conflict has resulted anywhere good for the rest of us. Right. I mean, look at the history of European conflicts. They, they screw up the whole planet every time they get into a fight. You know, and the same thing in the Middle East, you know, try to do containment, right? Try to not, you know, create things worse. And we talk about the Red Sea, but, you know, also, you know, dealing with the Asia Pacific area, I mean, the, the other major economies, Korea, Japan, Australia, I mean, they're very concerned about their security of territorial waters. And, you know, someone has to go in and lead that conversation, you know, and also the uh, trade components, right? You know, so the U.S., I don't care what anyone says about this declining America. This is completely fictional. Um, you know, the fact that GDP is at 3.2, which is really hot. Uh, and then, you know, the, the GDP of the country is, you know, over $25 trillion. I think it's closing to 26. I mean, in other countries, you know, speaking of China being, you know, the second biggest economy, they're kind of having a domestic uh, problems because they don't run a regulated capitalist system. They just run a regulated economy where we are a regulated capitalist system. They're just straight up regulated system. So and now we're seeing some of the shortfalls they're facing. Um, on on how their markets work, and uh, their provincial governments have like fifty trillion dollars in debt, U.S. dollars. Mm. It's insane, and uh, they can't raise revenue by income taxes on the provincial level. It's raised by property sales. It's a t longer conversation. It took me like weeks to learn this crazy mechanism because I'm actually just fascinated by this stuff. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, we're going to get overtaken. I mean, possibly at some point, but. You know, I still believe a capitalist system with good regulatory guidelines, you know, is still the strongest economy you could possibly have. And we're blessed by a country with a lot of natural resources. We're still the biggest exporter of raw materials on the planet. And uh, we also you know, blessed by the fact that we have a very secure country in terms of our neighbors. And, you know, we don't have the potential invasion uh, on either side of our borders in terms of like a military conflict. And, you know, we have two oceans to buffer. Right. Yeah. Think how nervous you are if you're Poland, for instance. Oh, Poland is ranking up big time militarily. They, these, yep. they, they're not waiting for NATO. They're not waiting for EU. They're just going to just go to deficit spend like mad, regardless of the economy. The Germans are already facing it now. I mean, they, they started massive ramp up uh, after basically doing nothing for 50 odd years. Right. Now they're going to start looking at major budget deficits. You're going to see European countries have big budget deficits for the first time uh, in a long time because they have to rack up the military fast. Uh, and building a tank isn't an overnight situation. And you got in the military industrial complex in the Western world is not strong. You know, after the end of the Cold War, you know, a lot of military complexes shifted to domestic commercial. Doesn't make sense, you know. The Soviet Union's gone, right? And they thought we'd be in this everlasting era of peace through trade. And you know, 
Putin takes over 25 years ago or so, and they become a military complex. And you know, the Chinese government is now moved to a military complex because they want to be the sphere of influence. And they're trying to um, outpace the US spending on military, but our, we spend about 3%-ish on, on military spending against GDP. Most country can barely, most countries can't even get to 1%. Yeah, yeah. So in the meantime, the uh, president looks like he's already, he's he's in, in November mode. He's assuming Donald Trump's going to be the Republican nominee. Yeah, the UAW strike, the auto workers, when he actually was the first president to march that picket line, was a big help for him regarding labor. And while labor movement slowed a little bit at the end of 2023 when organizing, organizing, uh, whether it be at Starbucks or Amazon, is still going on. And labor is having a resurgence on, on that. Um, it's just different. You know, the days of you know, a, a gear factory unionization, you know, now it's become a warehouse in, in uh, the Amazon or Barista and Starbucks. So it's, it's really has changed. And, you know, you're going to watch the president completely um, continue to uh, work on supporting labor and the UAW strike definitely showed the president's support for that. And people forget, don't forget, he also was the guy to put out more tax credits regarding EV vehicles, which is actually supposed to be good for UAW workers. However, uh, the economy is not helping because anyone who could afford an EV vehicle already took advantage of the tax credit when interest rates were lower. And uh, now interest rates may be going to be declining in 2024, maybe. Maybe, um, yeah. And uh, at some point, and uh, the, you know, people will be able to take that advantage of tax credit and the interest rate. But again, 6% is not very favorable for interest rate when you could you know could have got a car for like 3.7 mm -hmm. five years ago so because it was a 3.9 whatever it's under four percent so you know the president needs a lot of things to happen that he has no control over yeah. uh to to really make people feel like that the dollar stretches further but you know it's not a bad move in my personal opinion uh you know uh, supporting labor heavily as as labor is you know, moving around the country, you know, strong. And I'm sure Donald Trump's going to court labor too. Uh, but he also got the labor guys, you know, still have to get their guys to vote the way they would like them to vote once they endorse. And that's that's a different battle that none of us as elected officials have really much control over. Right, um, right. We're going to still court their vote. However, you know, whether they listen to union leadership, well, that's a question about the quality of union leadership. And the UAW seems to be on the outside looking in. Pretty, a pretty strong united front. I'm not saying it's like 100% people are going to follow uh, the, the the leadership, but you know, it, it's looking like you know it's going to be pretty strong because leadership delivered. Um, anything coming up in the district uh, in the next uh, little while, Techie? We should know about. Um, trying to think. There's a lot going on in January. It's pretty quiet. We have Chili Fest coming up in February 3rd. I think that's a Saturday out in Hell's Neck. You know, that's a little far out. Um, actually, Monday uh, at Status, we're going to talk about Fred Karamatsu Day. Is it Fred? Was it? It's Karamatsu Day. I probably got the first name wrong. But I mean, uh, those who don't know, Kar the Karamatsu case is a case regarding uh, Japanese internment camps. And, uh, you know, this case is pivotal because it, you know, authorized the US government to inter people into camps, take stripping them of their uh, rights of movement, which is a constitutional right uh, during wartime. And uh, that case has never been overturned. 
and that Congress has never passed a law preventing this. So uh, the Karamatsu Day is actually on Monday. The state house is going to do a little recognition, which there's a bill trying to make uh, Karamatsu Day uh, a thing in Massachusetts okay. in terms of recognition. And uh, New England School of Law, well, New England Law School now, you know, has invited me to come down to talk a little bit about this issue and borders of civil rights. But yeah, folks, you know, it, it is the power of the uh, the U.S. government, basically the president, to ability to inter people based on race. Uh, that is still good law. And it's something that can be done in Congress, never change it, and it's never been brought back to Supreme Court. So, you know, I think it's something people forget. Uh, is a power to president, and uh, I think the you current know, today is one of the remind people of that. This was he from Quincy, Tacky? No, this is a California case. Oh, okay. okay. If, if you look at a lot of Asian American lawsuits, they tend to come out of California. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can send you a whole list of cases if you care to read them. Uh, hmm. But uh, if you look at every um, case regarding Asian Americans, predominantly Chinese, Japanese, Indian, and Korean. Uh, all the big four ethnic groups that do those lawsuits, a lot of it revolves around rights of citizenship and rights of voting, rights of property ownership. Because uh, folks from Asia was largely banned from owning property, largely banned from, from voting, largely banned from accessing citizenship. They were, were refused naturalization. And uh, they even tried to uh, ban uh, people born in the U.S. from citizenship. Mm. Sounds familiar, doesn't it, folks? Mm. Um, Asians were the first. Uh, to the, the U.S. government really made a strong effort to ban Asians born in the U.S. citizenship. Well, it doesn't it doesn't get talked about a, a lot. No, this is the whole ethnic studies question. You know, we you know we there's bills all over the country. Some states have passed variations here and there, but the need to diversify our education system regarding other ethnic groups' contributions and. Um, tragedies uh, in the U.S. history is something that's really undertaught. And uh, people have this misnomer that, you know, we're on equal footing with the, you know, the existing power structure, and that's far, far, far from the truth even today. Um, and, you know, I can debate with my other friends of color regarding where we fit in politics. Uh, but, you know, I always tell folks that, you know, we have no natural advantages regarding the socioeconomics of how we're perceived. And, uh, you know, we don't always get to define how we're perceived. Um, and also where, and particularly east side of the, of the U.S., it's very different from California, where one quarter and one half, depending on the ethnic group of different Asian ethnic groups, live in one state. And uh, my experience has always been that when I, you know, have a chance to talk to folks on the West Coast, they're elected. It's very different from the Northeast, or very different from Georgia, different from Louisiana, or different from Minnesota. Um, you know, it's, it's all very different conversations and, and different cultural approach regarding those, those how they approach politics and where they fit in political structure. For example, you know, the um, the racial um, stereotype that Asians are good at math, right? You know, in California, particularly at county seats, you find a lot of Asian Americans winning comptroller seats. Hmm. Because On people a, perceive that they're going to do a good job just because of their race. <laughs> yeah, which is completely wrong. Yeah. Uh, but that they end up getting niched into elected office when I visit San Diego last summer. Was it last summer or two summers ago now? I keep losing track um, as part of visiting the United um, uh, uh, the United Labor's Union conference. I spent time to 
visit some local Asian organizations and talk to the mayor of San Diego and try to get their perspective of how things works regarding Asians and politics and how it works out there. And it was interesting, it's eye-opening because we, we, we obviously don't have comptrollers and how we're perceiving politics is different um, and how uh, sometimes they try to you know, get out of the niche, so to speak, of how the bigger voter base, which is obviously going to be Caucasian or African-American or Hispanic because they're still the bigger voter bases, um, and how they perceive us and what we're getting niched into. Um, it isn't because people won't run for other offices out there, but this, this misconceptions and stereotypes end up boxing them in uh, into certain types of elected positions, which is actually very beneficial because they're elected, but also very troubling because you can't expand beyond a, um, a stereotype. And, right. uh, you know, do other racial groups face these challenges? Mm. Probably not to that extent, yeah. Yeah, and that's why I always taught around Massachusetts to my colleagues around the country, you know, as one of the, we actually wanted a higher number of Asians elected in the legislature that is in Hawaii. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, we have some more diversity in some other states of so Cambodians and Vietnamese and Chinese. Mm -hmm. Mary Robinson was Korean, which, which is no, she's obviously gone to the administration, you know, so we have Japanese and uh, you know, Erica Eidehoven and, and so forth, and Tron Wynn and Paul Schmidt and Donna Wong and Roddy Wong and Vanah Howard. I mean, all my friends in government here. So, and, uh, you know, Lowe is still the only, Lowe and uh, Lynn are still the only places Cambodians have been elected to any office on a local level or anywhere in the country. So, I mean, we are a lot of first in Asian Americans. I think Massachusetts residents don't realize this or never thought of it. And remember back, you know, I'd like to repeat this story, but remember back in 2010, the media was all over the place trying to figure out, you know, am I going to be the first Asian elected to the House of Representatives? Oh, I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And the complete shock of the media and it didn't get a lot of media attention in the bigger picture. Uh, unlike some other ethnic groups, like, you know, let's be honest, I got very minimal media attention compared to other ethnic groups that, that yep. became first, uh, that they were, you know, that there were none in the House of Representatives. Oh, yeah. Oh, it even happened here in, at the local level when Nina Liang was elected to the city council. Yeah, and people had this like misconception that we've always been there. And that shows you how invisibility works in a different way in politics. The idea that you've always been there means you disregard it as an opportunity to become first. Again, th these are different challenges Asians and you know have that other ethnic groups don't. Mm. Interesting. Good good uh, food for thought for sure, Taki. Yeah, we can talk about this more. I mean, you know, there's you know, there's always fun about these kind of things. And, you know, I'm obviously hoping for other opportunities down the road to to talk to other um, elected people of color around the country. Uh, but we're in a busy time period right now, folks, so I'm not going to have the opportunity to, to travel. But, you know, as I've said before, a conference is good for legislators as a whole because it gives you a chance to get outside your little bubble, learn about new things, and, and find out about how other states, you know, do stuff. And the only way you can do that is actually having lunch with, folks for a couple hours and you know talk about you know who we are where we're from and how we do things but sure well, well there's always the summer where we're actually well august 1st so <laughs> but hope, maybe joint route 10 february 7th so all those i've got a committee as a chair and i'll take be able to take a deep breath for that and you know see if there's some you know other uh, conferences I can get to on a short jaunt, you know, like two or three day kind of thing. If if the timing's right between session and obviously local obligations. All righty, maybe we can uh, do a tacky talk from uh, on location again. That was fun last time.
yeah, we'll see if we can do that again. Uh, I, I think that's good too. I think it's, uh, I, I, I wish we had, I had the ability to do better, like, you know, on the move because the idea of a shaky camera on audio, it's probably fine, but I don't think people on YouTube or on cable access want to see me with a shaky camera trying to show you what things are. No, no, probably not. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but in the meantime, let's give out your uh, contact information. Well, I'm in an office. So we're in room 42 at the State House. Uh, we are staffed. 617 uh, 617-722-2370, 617-722-2370. How do worlds change? I have to tell people we're staffed because of this hybrid world we live in, right? So uh, tacky.chan at mahouse.gov, T-A-C-K-E-Y dot C-H-A-N at mahouse.gov is my email. I'm getting inundated by emails because joint routine's coming up. People are like, last ditch effort to get their bill out of committee. Uh, obviously, uh, we have the mahlegislature.gov. You can watch your hearings. You can look up your own bills. It's actually a pretty good website uh, on many levels of research. Uh, as well as tackychan.org is our resource page, and uh, at tackychan at uh, X and State Representative tackychan uh, Facebook. Do not social media message me. Please email or call the office. It's you know it, it gets a bit much um, because you also got LinkedIn and there's Facebook. You know, was it also there's like WhatsApp and. WeChat and Signal and all these and um, what's another one? Like so many of these. People trying to find me. Um, Instagram, TikTok, or I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're trying to keep up with nine different messaging systems, folks, it, it ain't going to work. Right. Not a teenager. I mean, <laughs> um, and obviously you can watch, you know, me and Joe, listen to your favorite podcast. Uh, oh, yeah. Don't forget, if you're using Google uh, Podcasts, it's going to change over in April. You probably got some emails, but, you know, get ready to shift your um, subscription to include us. Please, you know, absolutely. We need all yeah. the help we can get. <laughs> Make sure you include us as your podcast shift uh, to the to whatever new podcast system we're gonna have to use if you're on Google Podcasts. So, you know, and you know, check with Joe in the morning. She ha he has this good five to ten minute update. You know what's going on around here. Thanks, Tacky. Now, a week from today will be February first, so uh, things are moving along. Yeah, and Groundhog Day is on February second, so. <laughs> We'll see. Uh, we'll see six more weeks of winter or not uh, by end of next week. All right. Thanks. Talk to you later. Talk to you later, Joe. Thank you.